Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Insecure Majorities, Congress and the Perpetual Campaign. The book is published by the University of Chicago Press this year. The author is Frances Lee. Frances, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to talk to you, Heath. Yeah, so, such a pleasure. You are a professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland and a Congress expert. Um, I've been so excited to talk to you about this book uh, because uh, some of your perspective runs differently than some other authors that we've uh, recently had on, including um, uh, a couple of books that have been solely on polarization. And I thought we might begin our conversation there um, because a lot of the conversation recently is about, has been about Congress and polarization, and you shift the focus elsewhere. Just for the sake of clarification, you know, is your argument that polarization simply doesn't matter or just doesn't matter to what you were interested in here? Well, I would say that I think party polarization is a real phenomenon. I think that the that Republicans and Democrats are more distinct from one another ideologically now than they were throughout um, much of the 20th century. But my argument is not that um, ideological polarization has not occurred. But it is that we also need to consider how partisan incentives are shaped by an underlying context of party competition. We we live in a 50-50 country right now, and that's been the case for a long stretch of time. And what that means in an ongoing way is that the out party – uh, you know, not controlling the presidency or they are the minority party in Congress can at all times see a path to retaking power and that that encourages uh, the uh, the out party in particular, though both parties engage in this, in efforts to message to the electorate to make the case for a change of party control. So we, we live in an era of insecure majorities where the party in power is constantly uh, uh, worried about a loss of control and the party out of power can see a path back in. And so that means that there's a preoccupation with party politics, with, with, uh, with winning partisan advantage uh, inside Congress. And that manifests itself in many ways. The, the uh, parties continually strive to set up issues uh, to, to, to bring issues to roll call vote so as to highlight how the parties are different from one another. So you get the phenomenon of the, the so-called message vote that you know, members of Congress are pretty frank in, in, in acknowledging that many votes are staged not for the purpose of affecting public policy, but for communicating to voters how the parties are different from one another. This traces back to that competitive context where there's a constant effort to make your case to the electorate for why your party should continue in power or why uh, your party should get a shot at retaking power. And and so I think we haven't paid sufficient attention to that uh, 
uh, uh, logic of competition and haven't recognized how different our current era is from so much of American politics, where throughout, I mean, it used to be a conventional wisdom that um, there would be a dominant party and a secondary party in American politics. This was the normal state of affairs. It's why political scientists were so fascinated by the concept of the realigning election. You know, political scientists looking back from the 1970s saw a history where Republicans were the dominant party in national politics from the start of the 20th century, basically from 1896, all the way up until 1932, and that Democrats were the dominant party in national politics after that. But what we've had since 1980 are two parties, both of them, both of which see themselves as majority parties. And so in, the, in, in that kind of a competitive context, you get a lot more partisan effort, partisan organization, caucus meetings, partisan fundraising. This is tied to the nationalization of congressional elections, and it affects internal congressional politics uh, in an ongoing way. Yeah, yeah and let's, let's go to this sort of historical period because you're – your book you know, is very much about the period where we are in right now, but you look back in such an interesting way. I wonder if you could take us back to some of these periods in, in congressional history and, and how this has shifted of late. What, what are the important periods in your study, and, and when does majority of control of Congress move from being uninteresting to very interesting? Well, I see 1980 as a key turning point. 1980 was when the longstanding Democratic majority um, in the Senate uh, uh, was removed from power, uh, ousted by the Republicans, who in a, this is a very surprising outcome. Uh, you know, there was not speculation in the lead up to 1980 that Republicans would take control of the Senate, but they did. 1980 is also important in a qualitative way, which is that that is the first time since the New Deal in which Republicans won the presidency with a candidate from the conservative wing of the party. Reagan's election had meaning for Republicans in a way that Eisenhower's election did not, or the Nixon's election had. It led Republicans to see themselves as a party that could win nationally and present a thoroughgoing alternative to the Democrats rather than any kind of me-too perspective uh, or position relative to the Democrats. So it raised their hopes. You got a, a lot of speculation in, uh, among House Republicans in the wake of the 1980 elections that they might win control in 1982. Uh, you get the formation of the Conservative Opportunity Society uh, you know, under the leadership of Newt Gingrich in 1983, even though the 1982 elections were disappointing. Republicans uh, were were uh, you know, getting organized in the House in a way that they had not previously to present alternatives to voters to make a case for a Republican House majority. You get a, a pattern of rising frequency of, co- of Republican conference meetings in the House of Representatives throughout the 1980s and a constant battle uh, throughout the first half of the 1980s in the House about how to, how to approach the longstanding Democratic majority, that there was a cadre of Republicans, mainly the Republicans who, who were uh, most uh, strongly in, in, you know, believing that the Republican majority was in reach, um, pressing their colleagues to, to 
explain to voters more clearly why Republicans should win a majority. So to do this, you know, that meant framing votes whenever you had an opportunity to do so to highlight the differences between the parties and messaging. So you, the Conservative Opportunity Society you know, began to use uh, the one-minute speeches and special orders as a way to criticize that long-standing Democratic majority, to confront them more forcefully, so as to help voters understand the stakes. Now, th- this was an internal party battle between the so-called old bulls and the young Turks that uh, was ongoing through the 80s. But when Newt Gingrich uh, won the whip position in 1989, the meaning of that was very clear, that the Republican Party was shifting strategic approach to dealing with the Democrats and to pursuing a more uh, uh, strategy of more forceful confrontation to the the Democrats to, to clarify for voters what the differences between the parties really were. You know, that's the, that's a problem when, when the two parties work together collaboratively in Congress. That does not help the out party explain why the out party should be the in party. And so that the recognition of that fact, uh, and the fact that Gingrich was able to persuade his colleagues that a Republican majority was in reach is, you know, that, you know, that's, that's key to understanding a, 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 the tougher partisanship that has emerged in the contemporary Congress. That, um, you know, the 1994 elections, in my view, are not the key turning point. That a, a tougher brand of our style of partisanship was already in place in the House uh, before 1994. Now, 1994 raised the stakes further. It, it you know, let Republicans, uh, you know, Republicans won, won control in 94, and and it let them know that they could be, in fact, could be a House majority. You know, there were still many holdouts even in the in the uh, immediate lead up to 1994 among House Republicans who were skeptical of those young Turks that they that Republicans could ever win. But after 94, they knew they could be a majority party in the House. And Democrats didn't see themselves as a permanent minority. And so you've had both parties pursuing these strategies of tougher confrontation ever since as a way of, of making the case to the electorate for, uh, for uh, you know, winning power. Now, how do you investigate this? It's, it's such a novel. I mean, on the one hand, it seems like such a, a straightforward argument you're making, but, but it's such a novel argument. And the way that you approach this methodologically is so interesting. I wonder if you could talk about some of the different sources of information that you collect, because they are varied and, and numerous. So tell us what, what you've been doing to, to produce this book. So because what I'm interested in is strategic behavior, it's important to consult first-person perspectives that, you know, you cannot uh, gauge strategic behavior simply from what people or politicians do. You have to have to ascertain what they thought they were trying to achieve. So uh, I take a variety of approaches here. First, I start with first-person perspectives. So I did a, a good number of interviews for the for the project with um, long-standing former members and staffers, people who could offer perspective on what Congress was like before 1994 and 1980. So people with a long vantage point on the institution. I also uh, did a, an 
uh, in-depth historical analysis of the immediate lead-up to and fallout of the 1980 elections and how that transformed minority party behavior on both sides of the Capitol, both House Republicans and Senate Democrats. Then uh, I, I trace the rise of uh, of uh, uh, you know of party message operations in both House and Senate. The uh, the institutionalization of partisan public relations apparatuses uh, surrounding both parties and bo- uh, in both House and Senate. I trace that that development. It really gets underway in the late 1970s, just before the 1980 elections. Um, with Republicans investing in PR capabilities first, and then um, then Democrats, after after uh, realizing the threat, uh, begin to invest themselves. That you know, uh, Robert Byrd hires a press secretary after Democrats go into the minority um, in the Senate, and it's been a uh, uh, it's been a uh, you know escalating battle ever since. You know, with more and more leadership staff working in communications, so that it's about a third of all leadership staffers in the House now are dedicated to communications, and uh, about 45 percent of all Senate leadership staff work on communications. Uh, yeah. I go, go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a remarkable finding, and and one that you'd say. You know, how, how come I don't already know this? Um, I wonder if you could just sort of step back for a second and, you know, what did you make of this? Was this what you expected to find? Did you expect to find this, you know, pretty considerable shift in um, sort of where personnel were being staffed and the kind of talents that are being brought to Capitol Hill? Uh, you know, upwards of 40 percent of, of Senate leadership staff now on the communication side not on the policy side, not on the uh, constituent service side, but, but, you know, doing the various forms of communication. Um, did, you, did you expect the extent of this to be quite so large, or ha- have you gathered this for a while? I, um, I, I, I did not anticipate this at the outset. I, when I began the research, I knew that there were a lot of of people who worked on communications on Capitol Hill, but I didn't know when that had come about. I didn't know the history of um, those functions on Capitol Hill. I mean, if, certainly if you follow coverage of Congress in the Beltway Press, so Politico and The Hill and that you know, CQ, you know there are a lot of communicators. And there's a lot of coverage of the so-called message battle in Congress. Now, political scientists haven't written about it much, but uh, but it's certainly a subject of a lot of uh, of news attention. Uh, you know, if you if you follow you know coverage of Congress. So I knew that the, those functions were there, but I didn't know the history of their development and how uh, interestingly it intersected with the intensification of competition for control of Congress. That, you know, the, the Senate is ahead of the House. You know, because, you know the, Senate, the, the longstanding Democratic majority is ousted in the Senate before in the House. And so you see um, the professionalization of public relations capabilities in the Senate first. And in the House, it lags really – it's a story that really gets underway in the 1990s. That below, before the 1990s, it was only a, you know it was less than 10 percent of um, House leadership staff who worked in communications, and so the, all the escalation in the, in the House has been since the 90s. So it it, it worked very well with the story uh, that uh, you know was developing for the book, but uh, it was not something that I uh, I knew would be the case 
at the outset. You know, I did, you know, this book has been in the works for a long time. I've been thinking about these themes and doing related research for a long time. But it, it was only uh, maybe two, two years ago, about two years ago, that I would say to people, oh, I have a book that I'm writing. Because you, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, have enough work where it gels. And so I, I, you know, I didn't know from the very beginning of this research that there would be a book. You know, it was only after I'd done a whole series of papers and realized the 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 continuities across them and the ways in which they reinforced one another that uh, I realized that I really did have a book. Yeah, and what I what I think was just so interesting, and and because you make the the argument so in such a strong and clear way about this this shift and and what explains the shift and the timing of the shift. But but what about the other side of this? What what about the sort of the, the capacity of Congress to legislate and and to uh, make policy and and participate in the policy making process? Uh, what do these findings say to you about that side of of the kind of the ongoing questions about the capacity of Congress to do to perform those functions? Is this do, do your findings make you um? deeply pessimistic about about the ability of Congress to do that part of what they 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 uh, are, are put in place to do? Or, or do you think about this in another way? Well, I see the competition for control of Congress as an additional challenge to lawmaking and governance that you know, political scientists have already documented the extent to which um, members, acro- you know, members across party lines disagree with one another on ideological matters. That ideological polarization makes it hard to um, to do deals, to negotiate, to arrive at policy that a sufficient number of members uh, are. Uh, you know, are, are able to see as an improvement on the status quo, widens the gridlock interval, to use the, the terminology. You know, in a system of, uh, you know, bicameral system of separation of powers, you need large majorities to govern. Ideological polarization makes that more difficult. But so also does competition for majority control. The It's very difficult for an out party to participate in governance, to collaborate, with a majority party to arrive at deals and vote together in support of those deals and then go out to the electorate and say that the party in power is doing a bad job. How do you make that case? If you if if if, if they're doing a bad job, why are you working with them and why are you agreeing with them? If you know, this is something that House Republicans confronted in the 1980s, that you know, how could Republicans and Democrats work together in a cooperative way on the Appropriations Committee, which they had historically done, and then allow Republicans to go out and say to the electorate that it makes a big difference for government spending that uh, Democrats are in power and not Republicans? So, in, you know, in order to to highlight the differences between the parties, in other words, to say it makes a difference for government spending if that there are Democrats in power and not Republicans, Republicans on appropriations came under pressure from their colleagues to stop working with Democrats, to stop collaborating. Because as long as they collaborated, it made it hard for Republicans to define an alternative and to say this is what we're for and how it differs from the Democrats. And in a competitive context, you know, parties have greater incentive to engage in that kind of behavior. And that's an additional challenge to lawmaking above and beyond problems uh, stemming from ideological polarization. 
the, the book is uh, Insecure Majorities, Congress and the Perpetual Campaign. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the book is published by the University of Chicago Press this year. The author is Francis Lee. Francis, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Heath. I really appreciate it.